0: At the tail end of the Heroic Age of Exploration, there remained one major achievement to allure intrepid polar pioneers. The reaching of the geographical South Pole. In an era where few expeditions returned to the full party, numerous brave men suffered and perished in pursuit of that quest. This is a new podcast called Hard Hat History. My name's Carlin, and together with my co-host Danny, we'll be diving deep into various episodes from history that really intrigued us. So here we go. Raymond Priestley's 1956 address to the British Association, Scott for scientific method, Amundsen for speed and efficiency, but when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton, Uh, which actually turns out was a paraphrasing uh, of Apsley Cherry Garrard, have you heard of him? No, no. Who was uh, a guy who seemed to basically pay his way onto the expedition, onto Scott's expedition. Um, and ended up going on the final journey with the six of them to the to the South Pole. Um, but wasn't a big fan of anyone on the expedition. And I think at the time, no one else on the expedition was a huge fan of him. Um, so when he came back, he wrote uh, like memoirs called I think the book was called The Worst Journey in the World <laughs> and it was published in the 30s. No it actually might have been published um quicker than that. I think it was only a couple of years after the expedition. Um and I think that book in particular because um Scott was an able officer and you wouldn't get a lot of um well for years and only up until very recently uh you wouldn't see any criticism of Scott at all. Um but If you were to find any at the time, like contemporaneous to everything that was going on, the only kind of, I don't know how to describe it. This his account, absolutely cherry Garrard's account, was like the only one at the time from someone who wasn't like attached to any of the other lads. Do you know what I
1: mean? An unbiased observer who wrote a book called The
0: Worst Journey in the World. The, the Worst Journey in the World, yeah. Uh, it, it, I'm not 100% sure, but they, th- that book itself may have been where the Oates quote came from. Uh, like, it, 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 it originally or initially was uh, reported uh, about from Scott's letters, like his final letters and all that. Uh, but I think it was um, Garrard's book in there.
1: Absolutely, Cherry Garrard. Gerard, yeah Yeah, I know that's when you said that
0: I was like is he Norwegian (laughs) he he was English as as far as I know um but yeah came from or had a bit of money anyway and was just I suppose one of these lads back in the day where you know came from money uh may well I don't know I don't want to be second guessing any insecurities they had but uh came from money and wanted to make something of themselves and not be seen as someone who was just born into it so they would just Go on one of these expeditions
1: well no let let's try and get into his head a little bit because <laughs> i when when we started researching this the the thing that really popped out to me was wh- why did these people want to do it? Obviously, it's there to be explored. there are these blank areas of the map here be dragons, and like obviously you can see why there will be glory associated with that, and why the British Empire wanted to explore these yeah. places but why 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 would people individually take on themselves? The, these absurd, absurdly difficult tasks Like It wasn't unknown How difficult it would be In in fact you will see that uh, Pretty much Every Exploration party Underestimated The difficulties They come up against Yeah for but sure they, But they They weren't totally In the dark either As, Especially for, the, for example The Norwegians Knew what it was like To go long distances yeah. In cold places But why somebody Would like like this guy, Apsley, Apsley. Our, our buddy Apsley. Why would Apsley go to the trouble of spending a lot of money and time trying to insert himself into a party of, you know, real explorers, as it were?
0: Why would he want to do that? I... It's, yeah, it's, it's an inter- interesting question. I, I guess that with, um, depending on uh who it is you're looking at within the party you know like no one w- well with the terra nova no one was conscripted into it do you know what i mean it, it was it was all applications basically you know they would they would have had thousands of applications for each of the spots on the expedition um but then clearly some people would have been picked based on their maritime ability and you know closeness to scott and all that but then you would have had people who i suppose would have seen it as an opportunity to improve their position um because if you're heading away in that and i suppose i suppose with success you're gonna have a higher chance of coming back and you know making a name for yourself writing a book and opening a pub or something like that you know a la tom crean uh but with someone like absolutely it, it's it's kind of hard to to figure out yeah you know if if you kind of have the ability to do what you want in life particularly back then why would you choose to go and do something like that it's it has to be, or I, I would, I would think that it's, um, or s- some factor of proving oneself comes it, into it. And without without meaning to spoil
1: it, I think quite a lot of them prove themselves. <laughs> may, maybe a little too much. So
0: let's let's start at the beginning. What what was Terra Nova? So Terra Nova was the expedition led by Robert Falcon Scott, who was a British naval officer, um, who wanted to be or wanted to lead the first party to reach the south pole uh he the expedition itself started off in 1910 it was only a couple of years after himself and ernest shackleton had actually come back from the discovery expedition uh where they'd made a lot of progress looking back on it now it really seems that the what gave them the ability in the future expeditions to kind of progress as far as uh, as far as they did was the work done on the discovery expedition um, so he had had been to the south pole before had been to the uh, the barrier uh, which is I, I think at the time it was yeah the, the great ice barrier or something similar to that uh, but is now known as the ross ice shelf uh, so it would be it would be the area to provide access onto the polar plateau that the, the southern polar plateau where the south pole itself is
1: if you're trying to picture this like mm. the antarctica has beaches as it were they're they ice beaches and this is where you'll find walruses and seals and things and that goes right down to the water but the the majority actually belongs on this this polar plateau which is up quite high you you know you can't just walk onto it no
0: it, it seems that uh, through all these expeditions one of if not the hardest part Uh, of the the kind of the main objective was uh, crossing the barrier and getting up onto the plateau Uh, like while conditions on the plateau were you know a lot worse than they would have been below it the actual uh, kind of traversing of the the slope onto the plateau was was pretty rough because you would have um, well you have all the conditions that are there on the Antarctic but you also have like sloped uh, you know cliffs ice cliffs you have like pieces of the ice cracking uh, you have the difficulty of using men to drag a lot of equipment up cliffs, well not necessarily cliffs but you know slopes uh, on the barrier where uh, if, if you had an alternative method of going up there if you're know if you using horses or dogs or something like that uh, you wouldn't have the issue but there's, there are some routes um, chosen in particular for different reasons that would have meant that it wasn't possible to use dogs or horses, and uh, I mean that's that's
1: a round earther perspective. What what you might find interesting is, uh, like okay, so the science was well established at that time, but early on, when people were thinking about, you know, suppose supposing the Earth was flat, like what would be at the edge? One of one of the one of the theories was the great ice wall, and it's it's interesting to see that there this this great ice wall in a sense does exist. Yeah. And and this so this is the first hurdle. There's no problem getting a ship to Antarctica, um, apart from that if if you're going through the Pacific, there can be very little wind. But it, that was a
0: solved problem in mm-hmm. 1911. Yeah, uh, like y- you had you had powered ships for for like a long time at that stage. Um, you know, going back as far as the Frank Franklin expedition in the 1840s, uh, which was another British naval expedition um, commissioned this time by the Navy themselves, as, a, as opposed to uh, the later ones, which would, would have mostly been um, self-fundraised, you know. They would have kind of shopped themselves out to different corporate interests who would have backed them. And like in return, they would have had lifeboats and different parts of the expedition named after the benefactors.
1: Which, I, I mean, maybe sounds bizarre in a modern context. But if you think about the, this, the, the probably the best modern analog to this is talking about going to Mars. What they were doing is essentially going to Mars and if you've heard all the discussion about you know Elon Musk is going to Mars and he's going to do it in a Tesla rocket and
0: wasn't there a guy, some guy from Dublin who got scammed into it or something like that, do you remember the the one a few years ago? Oh one, yeah, Mars yeah. one
1: Mars one yeah yeah that was another was some Dublin scientist Dublin oh we're going we're going to fund it by selling ads and <laughs> streaming <laughs> yeah. it live I, I, I know if they could have streamed it live, Scott would have had a,
0: a webcam in his privy and absolutely uh coca-cola branded webcam hanging from the roof of the tent or something like that you know mm-hmm. uh it, it, it's an interesting comparison to make because i suppose the, the the similarities or the parallels that you have are um once once they set out in the journey um until and if i suppose they make it back uh they don't really have any support uh they're out there on their own anything that happens has to be resolved by themselves Uh, and if they can't then that means the end of the expedition uh you know obviously depending on whether something goes wrong and when it does go wrong and at what stage of the expedition it's at you know it can be recoverable you know you have examples of expeditions meeting their main goal but then actually failing to get everyone back alive and then you have expeditions that failed their main goal or main objective uh but managed to succeed in getting people back alive so like it. It is interesting in a way comparing it to to space travel because although nowadays you would and even back to the sixties with the Apollo missions, you have direct communication between Houston and the ships or the 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 shuttles. Um, back then you would have had no communication. You know,
1: they now there were a couple of expeditions that I think brought pigeons mm-hmm. in the hope that the pigeons could fly from Antarctica to, back to Britain or.
0: Uh, yeah whatever
1: nearby bases i don't think any of those succeeded is that right
0: i i n- n- not as far as i'm aware no i, I don't think it was a proven concept <laughs> uh you know i i would imagine i would imagine any pigeons trying to kind of traverse the the drake passage and use those southern winds would come into a bit of difficulty
1: um, in fact, I, I know there were pigeons used in the balloon uh,
0: expedition to the North Pole. There were, yeah. ill-fated... Andre, Andre's expedition, who was uh, a Swedish man, wasn't he? Was he Swedish? He was uh, Swedish. My apologies. Uh, did you say something else?
1: I think I said Norwegian, okay. or at least I thought it.
0: I don't think he said anything. You could have gotten away <laughs> with it. Uh, he, he was Swedish anyway, the, the Andre fella, yeah, himself, and two... I wouldn't even say buddies, because... I'm not sure how much coaxing uh, he had to do to get them to to come with him. I think they were, like, willing companions. Uh, But himself and two other um, intrepid explorers got up into a balloon and attempted to fly to the North Pole and back. I I, I don't think they they made it very far. I think within the first couple of days, uh, the issues with the, um, the canvas on the balloon and leaking... What was it, helium or...? Uh, was was it helium or hydrogen? hydrogen? I see. I didn't think it was hydrogen, but it would make sense to be hydrogen because that hmm. was everything at the time, was Hang on. So, Terra Nova was a British Antarctic expedition to uh, to be the first to reach the South Pole. Um, it was. To be built upon uh, previous expeditions uh, such as Nimrod, Discovery uh, and other non-British ones where uh, progress had been made um, up onto the polar plateau. So at at the stage of the Terra Nova expedition beginning you would have had uh, a couple of bases, uh, to call them bases might be a bit inaccurate now, stations anyway that wouldn't necessarily be manned all year round but... Had been previously set up um, to be used in the future, and you know each time they would go back, they would be able to make a bit more progress. So the Terra Nova expedition, from a British perspective, anyway, uh, was the first—the um, first time, I suppose, Scott himself uh, and any of the British uh, really thought that it was achievable. Um, Shackleton, in on the Nimrod expedition, which was a couple of years before Terra Nova. Had made it as far as eighty degrees south, um, and at that time, uh, it was it was quite the achievement to make it that far. Um, now, previous to that, himself and Scott had fallen out, um, after being on an expedition together, and. B- through that, uh, they both went and carried out their own separate ones. So yeah, T- Terra Nova was the first attempt by the British to to reach the South Pole when they thought it was achievable. Uh, it was named after a whaling ship that they that they bought. Whaling ships were usually or generally uh, used for these types of expeditions because um, whaling ships would have been used in these conditions or whaling ships from these areas and say south pacific or around new zealand or around the south coast of australia or argentina or somewhere like that you know so they're used to the icy conditions they can handle the intense cold the high the high winds and um the swells of the sea uh so so yeah uh funnily enough tom crean was also on scott's expedition to the uh to the south pole the turnover expedition he had a pretty important part to play he wasn't one of the chosen members to uh continue along the polar plateau to the south pole and um, i th- i think at the time as well he he may have expected to be chosen because at this stage he had been with scott um a few different times on expeditions and had been rechosen by scott because of his um his ability on boats and also his kind of ability for endurance across land and, and that sort of thing. So although um he, he was turned down at the at the final hurdle really um before the, the final group split up, so it, it would have been eight of them that made the trip from their base camp towards the South Pole. Um, and the initial plan was to split into two groups of four once they um once they crossed the barrier. But what happened was uh, instead of them splitting into two groups of four once they hit the barrier, Scott decided to take five as uh, the pole group and leave three, go back. There are all these problems inherent uh, with taking more people with you because as it hadn't been planned before they left their base camp, they wouldn't have had accounted for that uh, and would have still been using the four-man tent for five people and crucially, um, uh, be, be, because of the planning that would have gone into the food and the materials required to, to, that they would have required to take with them, cooking for five people compared to four in their setup took an extra half an hour. So you had a situation where, I, I suppose just just saying something like um, squeezed five people into four-man tent, it, it mightn't sound that crazy or life-threatening. Uh, but when, when you're in a condition like... Uh, antarctic near the south pole it's a different story altogether because when you run out of floor space uh, as you would with five people in a four-man tent the fifth person or whoever the extra person is will be pushed up against the sides of the tent and the problem with that is you've got um, minus whatever number you want to pick winds hitting the side of the tent um, and you're not you're obviously you've got to deal with that and you're not getting a flat surface to sleep on for the night so in addition to their sleep being disrupted on that final journey um they had the fact that they really hadn't hadn't accounted for having a fifth man so their food resources probably weren't what they should have been and also um uh, taking an extra half an hour to cook for the fifth person has got to mess up your plans a lot
1: and what can't be understated here is the the effect that personalities and interpersonal relations would have had on this when when you think about the fact that these these trips don't take 2 weeks they take 3 years yeah and it's one thing to spend a couple of nights, five men in a four-man tent, but imagine food is running mm-hmm. low, morale is running low, and this guy is rolling over on top of you. Yeah.
0: Uh, you're dead right about the, the, the kind of um, picturing it or visualizing the whole thing as, as a couple of nights in a tent and, I'm ah, sure, you know, you'd manage it for the sake of being the first person to the South Pole, but... The thing is, uh, by the time they'd reached the barrier and split into their group of um, five and three, they had already been out there for months. Uh, you know, I- Even at their, their base location, where things would have obviously been a lot more um, hospitable than, than, it, than it is closer to the South Pole, they're still existing in a polar environment where they're, they're surviving on their supplies that they took with them from England. So stuff that would last, stuff that wouldn't necessarily you know, um, get your juices going. So,
1: on Discovery, which got back in 1904, Scott had gotten to 82 degrees, 17 minutes. Yes. In 1909, Shackleton's Nimrod, which Scott wasn't brought on. No. Got to 88 degrees, 23 minutes. Wow. That's 180 kilometers from the South Pole.
0: Which is, in in the grand scheme of Antarctica, is pretty... Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, pretty good, like if you're within 200k. Yeah, <laughs> you'd, you'd almost give it to him. <laughs> it, it still is like weeks travel there and back, but still, you know. So,
1: so obviously that decision is heartbreaking, because they, they would have gotten to the pole. they would have gone to the pole mm-hmm. had they been able, and making the decision to turn back at that point, yeah. is so difficult, considering that you've been hiking in just featureless whiteness. For months and months now And then you have to say No If we keep going We'll die Mm -hmm. And these guys were pushing it To the limit already Yeah And they had to come back And so And so The kind of chip on your shoulder You'd end up with After that Either Either as Scott Who hadn't even gone on Nimrod Mm -hmm. Or as Shackleton Who'd gone on Nimrod And gotten within tasting distance Mm -hmm. Of the pole and, and, And so The kind of grudge These guys had Yeah would have been ridiculous
0: and if you not to um i don't want to spoil anything but if if you if you look at what happened in in the subsequent expeditions their subsequent separate expeditions um after discovery and then nimrod with the terra nova well you know scott's scott's attempt and and the the group the group of eight that made it to the plateau they're their attempt was obviously commendable and it, even to do that even to make it there and survive for that long was obviously it must have been incredibly tough um when they made it to the south pole uh it turned out that uh, uh a young roald Amundsen had already made it there and beaten them by i think it was by 39 days mm-hmm. it was just mm-hmm. over a month anyway um and when they when they reached uh when they reached the south pole there was a tent with a Norwegian flag sticking out the top of it, um, with I th- I think Amundsen had left him some supplies around the tent and left a note saying, uh, "Sorry about sorry about that, lads, but feel free to use any of this uh, any of these supplies." Better luck uh, next time. And in addition to that, he had left a letter for Scott to deliver for him. Now, do you know who the letter was to? No. The letter was to King Hakon of Norway, saying basically, "I've I've done it." Uh, for, for the good of Norway and for the glory and honor of, uh, of our country, I've done it. Uh, now, whether Scott actually delivered that letter, I'm not sure. I would imagine Amundsen probably made a second letter and brought it with him and made sure it was delivered. Uh, but, yeah, so in that kind of way, you know, only for the fact that they were beaten by a few weeks. You know, S- Scott's expedition the Terra Nova is every bit as commendable as the later, or sorry, Amundsen, the Roald Amundsen expedition but it wasn't it wasn't until they were on their way back from the south pole that they really ran into trouble um so yeah in terms of looking at shackleton and and scott being on the same expedition and then leading their own separate expeditions uh you've got scott whose party whose entire uh plateau party his entire group of 5 died on the way back from the south pole at at different stages um for well mo- mostly similar reasons um and you have you have shackleton in the endurance or the was called the imperial trans antarctic expedition who like at, at that stage with shackleton um the south pole was gone as an objective you know Amundsen had reached it and scott had just missed it the last great challenge to him offered by the antarctic uh was crossing it so landing on one side and crossing to the other side and then continuing the journey and and, and coming back um and it's interesting to to see how their experiences informed them because, as you mentioned there, um, on the Nimrod expedition, Shackleton reached what did you say was 87 degrees south? 88? So 88. 88, was it? Yeah. yeah, so had improved upon the previous record set by the, the Scotland expedition. Um, when he reached the 88th degree. <laughs> <laughs> When he when he when Shackleton reached eighty eight degrees south, um, as we were saying, you know, you're only two hundred kilometers from the South Pole. The temptation to just say, you know, let's just go for it. You know, maybe maybe to kind of rein in whatever sensibilities you have about like your how your men are are. Dealing with the conditions, how your supplies are, you know, how, how if they're dwindling or not, you know, because th- there, are, there are examples of people disregarding that and just saying, you know, let's go for it and let's just see what happens to us. Um, so Shacklin would have had the opportunity to decide to push on to try to, to get to the South Pole and decided not to. Uh, decided because of the condition that his men were in, that it wasn't worth the risk and so returned without the loss of any life. Um, now shackleton in the endurance expedition uh it's 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 kind of tough to say exactly um what caused the kind of the failure of that what ultimately caused the failure of it was they got stuck in ice fields you know they um they were relatively close to where they wanted to set up uh where they wanted to land and kind of set up the the trans-antarctic expedition from from their land base but uh, they I i think it was about 60 kilometers they would have been, if, if they'd been able to sail another 60 kilometers uh, along the coast, they would have been pretty much perfect. Um, but one night they woke up and the ice had closed in around them and it just, it didn't let up. They, they, they attempted to break themselves out of the ice um, uh, with saws and pickaxes, like... It, 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 I've, I've seen video of, videos of it And like you, can, you can see pictures and videos of it yourself But uh, it, it really is Kind of as mad as that sounds Literally getting out of the boat And just hacking away at the ice in front of you To try to create a break in the flows
1: And, and this, this wasn't totally unusual These sailors were used to this kind of thing There were Ships could be uh, stuck in ice for a season And what that would mean is Living on or in the vicinity of the ship mm-hmm. Hunting for the likes of polar bears and just kind of waiting it out. Yeah. And uh, it, it, just imagining what it would be like to only live on a ship yeah. and in the close confines, it must have been horrendous.
0: Yeah, like most, most of the expeditions that would have been going through ice fields and would have been like in a ship prepared to do that would have had supplies on board to winter mm. if they needed to for a couple of seasons. Um, I know Amundsen on his successful expedition to the South, to the South Pole Uh, wintered for it may have been a couple of years um, Mm and before um progressing on but the interesting thing about that is when he was wintering he spent a lot of time with locals with um i'm not sure if it was the inuktitut's uh but it wouldn't it wouldn't have been too far off where the uh where the Franklin expedition was that got stuck trying to find the Northwest Passage by 50, 60 years before what we're talking about. Sorry, but we should draw the distinction here. This, mm. this is the North Pole we're talking about. Yes.
1: People <laughs> don't live near the South Pole. <laughs> Ain't so, any polar bears down there either. Just <laughs> flightless so. birds. Maybe some seals but, but pe- people people cite this contact with the inuit and the better experience of being in a polar environment that amundsen had as the crucial difference in his success and the symbolic of this was that he brought dogs mm-hmm. whereas the the british brought ponies
0: so yeah the the there were, issues, there were even issues with the, the quality of the ponies when they were bought because I think the person who was put in charge of buying the ponies really didn't have a clue what he was doing and was just given a amount of money and told, right, buy 40 horses or whatever. Um, the, yeah, th- th- there were a number of kind of uh, peculiarities with the, with the Scott expedition when you compare it to what Amundsen did and kind of knowing it in the context of, okay, Amundsen did this and went on to be successful. Even if you don't include the rest of his achievements, you know, Um, the the first he was beaten to the North Pole by, oh, Perry. He was an American fella. Although I think that's I think that's still disputed, but like a lot of people accept him as being the first to reach the North Pole. Um, But Amundsen himself was the first to ever reach the North and the South Pole, and he was also the the first to complete the Northwest Passage. But what I think definitely what stands out is that yeah Amundsen was i don't know was it just through luck that he ended up meeting those natives uh up in the polar circle um but it's it seems that that experience really informed him well and you know essentially made the success for him do you know what i mean uh like i i I certainly it's, it's hard to tell. Amundsen was a Norwegian and was an experienced skier and also uh, was comfortable in snowy mountainous regions. He was comfortable with dog sleds. Um, but outside of that, you know, there, there are lots of different things that natives uh, from the region would be able to offer, you know, like building an igloo, mm-hmm. um, like the fishing for seals. Or sealing, I suppose, not really fishing for seals, <laughs> hunting seals, um, <laughs> and through that, like you, you have a couple of things. Um, he he seemed definitely more willing to use dogs than Scott did. Uh, Scott did bring dogs with them on the Turnover expedition, but seemed mm, unconvinced as to you know how how much he could rely on them. Uh, the British also weren't as into uh, eating the horses and dogs. Uh.
1: Yeah, this this comes through quite a bit, is that these were, you know, British gentlemen and naval officers, and they there's a certain kind of way of comporting yourself that would have been expected from those mm-hmm. kind of people at the time, and it, it definitely comes through. Yeah. The kind of self-sacrifice and the kind of steely determination is, is the good part of it, and the kind of, you know, no of course like oh I would never eat a horse that's, yeah. that's a thing a Frenchman would do
0: and I think I think it's kind of for me anyway I think it, something like that is hard not to admire do you know because y- you have these lads who are willing to put themselves through a lot uh, and you know wh- whoever was on the expedition everyone involved knew what they were getting into but uh, even in a situation like that where you're you're really stuck and they they knew from other expeditions how effective you know taking the animals with them and then eating them on the way as your supplies reduced but they still decided you know no that's that's not the english way of doing things mm-hmm. which you know i don't know that there's some I, I don't know if i was in that position that i would be able to it's certainly
1: admirable. and then you say well how how much do you want to be admired and how much do you want <laughs> to be alive
0: yeah yeah that that that's it I, you know uh, do you think when Scott was in that tent for his final 10 days, when they made no progress, like do you think maybe he was like, damn, we really should have eaten those horses? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, th- I think he, he, he probably cursed every horse individually.
0: Um, I know Oates in particular, um, of the, the, the well-known quote, uh, he, I think as far as I know he was in charge of the horses, but he refused to put snowshoes on the horses. Uh, was, was that undignified or something? Um, I, I'm not sure, really. Like it, it, it to me, it kind of comes across a bit like we've used horses before like this. We don't need to stick these snowshoes on them. I th- it, it may have been born out of a similar thing to the you know, this is the way we do things as British naval men. You know, mm-hmm. like this is this is the way they've been done before, and this is the way we're going to continue doing it because we have confidence that it'll work now. The Terra Nova is probably the biggest example of um, a lot of factors coming together and just messing, messing things up. Um, but it really does highlight how Amundsen really kind of honed down his ability to travel through these areas and be effective. He, uh, I suppose th- the most crucial thing, I think, uh, from looking at it is that he understood the importance of wearing furred skins as opposed to like woolen clothes so the 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 british um the british navy men on the, the other men on the expedition would have all worn heavy uh, woolen parkas which are decently effective at keeping um the cold out um not as effective as you know uh, furred skins furred animal skins uh but the issue is when they become wet because mm-hmm. uh that that woolen park is not going to dry out very quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> if it does at all if it doesn't just freeze there and then and then you're done you know franklin expedition uh that exists today about what happened to them after the expedition was lost as it were uh the only kind of surviving stories come from the uh the inuit area because past past the first year of the expedition there aren't there are no surviving letters or anything um so as with i suppose with with how these kind of What's uh, the word of mouth stories would have been spread in these areas? You know, you have various different stories about uh, about like single men just wandering off on their own out of the group and just kind of deserting the group. And then one particularly grim one where I think it it would have been a couple of years after they first got um, stuck in the ice that they uh, that there was a group of forty of them seen going south. uh, Still two years after, so obviously still trying to find humanity or trying to find someone who could rescue them um and that the the inuit had said that they had obviously resorted to cannibalism so they were just like any anyone who was on not necessarily anyone but people who were unwell that they probably thought well you know that person's gonna die anyway we ain't got no food we're literally living on biscuits and potentially like lead poisoned cans that we've been eating for three years you know let's eat frank <laughs> <laughs> uh which which, which is, is kind of scary um but uh what I was going to say earlier was with with Amundsen as well, one of the other crucial things he learned from from the Inuit was that eating um, fresh meat from animals in the area will help with scurvy because most animals should have enough vitamin C in the fresh meat to to stave it off. And actually, if you're suffering from scurvy and it's already begun, um, it can help heal it.
1: No, they would have brought limes and stuff on the ships. Yes. They, they they realized that a long time ago. So, so
0: with, with that Franklin one that I mentioned, the, the, the Franklin expedition was um, sent out in the 1840s, a, a British Navy expedition to complete the Northwest Passage. So that would have been following in Christopher Columbus's footsteps to find um, find a way to go east by going west. Uh, Franklin's expedition, hundred I think it was about 130, 140 men went out in two boats and no one returned and to this day it's it's a mystery um what happened to them but with with them the the, the bodies that they've been able to find and um, they've established that there's a good chance that they were suffering from scurvy so that it was it was within the camp or within the group um and also that i i think it was May have been tuberculosis as well. Whatever they were able to determine, it was only three bodies out of 130, and it, it, it you weren't able to extrapolate to the to the entire group. But with that, with that expedition, because it was much earlier than other ones, you know there were still lessons to be learned. And what they did was they brought their vitamin C in the form of lemon or lime juice. Lime juice, I'm guessing, would it be? Or would it wouldn't necessarily have to be. It could be orange juice, I suppose.
1: Yeah, like. yeah. I, I I think that you get higher concentration in lemon in, and lime. In lemon and lime. So so that's why they're limey. <laughs>
0: So, some sort of fruit juice but uh, the thing was that they actually brought a premixed mm-hmm. um so what would happen there is for the first 6 months that juice drink would be a good source of vitamin C mm-hmm. but um as the months go by that vitamin C just diminishes until I don't know what what mm-hmm. stage it would be but within a relatively short space of time probably before they'd had to abandon the ships um they've the juice that they'd taken with them to stave off the scurvy w- wouldn't actually do that anyway because... It was only good as a mixer for gin at that point. <laughs> and even that, I suppose, because it wouldn't taste great. But I, I think it was within a year they'd have been fairly certain that that lime juice would have had no help to them at all. Because they weren't used to taking voyages
1: of this length, even, you know, sailing to the Americas and things. Yeah. Would at most have taken a couple of months.
0: Yeah. the uh, th- That's it. I, I suppose... the. The Franklin Expedition, you're talking about nearly 60 or 70 years um, before the, the Terra Nova and the Endurance Expedition with Scott and, and Shackleton, but the technology they had available to them at the time would have been pretty state-of-the-art. Uh, they had two converted steam engines from trains, I think from the Croydon line, that were put into each of the ships. And... Um, that would drive a screw at the back of the ship. Um, so in addition to the sails, obviously, they would have that, which would be crucial in polar regions where you may get stuck in ice fields um, because um, if you ain't got much wind and you're stuck in an ice flow, you've got to have some kind of way of powering yourself out, you know? For perspective, the, the current
1: solution to that problem is to have a nuclear reactor on board the ship. and that, So uh, Russia maintains a fleet of nu- nuclear icebreakers, which do this job now. And even
0: even that is is difficult. Yeah, the it, it's interesting to look at um, look at the different expeditions that that got stuck in in ice fields because you have some that got stuck in the field and weathered it and just waited for a break to, or a crack to open up and then went on. Now sometimes they'd have to wait until the next season. So you're talking waiting from like summer to summer or winter to winter or something like that, just waiting out. Um, waiting out the bad weather because especially in that earlier franklin expedition you know there had been people up there who charted some of the areas a lot of it the funny thing is because you're talking about large ice fields and ice flows uh, a lot of the stuff that had been charted they weren't 100 percent sure about so you know some things would be uh described as like a peninsula from the mainland or a peninsula from another large piece of land and it would turn out it was an island because no one the previous year had been able to go around the entire way, but ice had opened up and let them go around. You know, so they're discovering it as they go. Um, but with with the with the Franklin guys, it's interesting to see, because it's the same area just 60 years before that Amundsen would have traveled through, uh, and he used the opportunity to learn from the locals and to make sure that he, he knew for that expedition and for future expeditions how to survive in the environment. Um, Seems to me that between Franklin in 1848 and um, Scott in 1910, there wasn't much progress made on the British side in terms of talking to the people who live there year round and figuring out what the best way to approach it is. Uh, because you would have to think with the Franklin expedition, with 140 lives lost, um, if 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 it was uh, to do with supplies and like the lead cans on the ship that took with them being poisoned, um, if they were at least if they at least had some uh, capability of sealing or, you know, like living in the land and creating igloos and that sort of thing and knowing how to hunt polar bears. And, like, basically, if if they'd done what Amundsen had did at any stage, you know, it would have surely improved their knowledge of the area, you know. That
1: said, their complacency was somewhat
0: justified. I mean, up until the point when Amundsen got
1: to the pole, Mm -hmm. the record was set by Shackleton. Yeah. And and this was without learning the lessons that the yeah. Norwegian party yeah, went yeah, yeah. and
0: learned so so yeah you know you could look at that and say well you know what reason was there for to to change what they were doing you know like um what what had worked so far had had been successful you know it, 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 like th- the thing as well that's important to mention is amundsen um while he he was the first to reach the South pole uh was building upon british successes you know uh, what Scott and Shackleton had done the, in the years previous. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't like anyone's was trying to say they're complete, they were completely useless and they were just, you know, kind of faffing about and not really understanding what... They didn't really have a full grasp on what they were doing, you know? Um, I think uh, Amundsen was a bit of an opportunist and mm-hmm. just effective of what he did and knew knew what the important things to take with him. And, to, to and certainly having had the opportunity to be beaten to the pole before... I think that, you know, maybe he, he turned it into a teachable moment. And yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, he when Amundsen set out uh, from Norway initially, his plan was the North Pole. But uh, while en route, he heard about the Perry expedition and just decided to switch it to the South Pole. Uh I I think Scott had actually left at that stage. So before Amundsen had even decided himself or announced the, the South Pole expedition, uh, Scott already had the Terra Nova in his mind. Um, so it was actually only when Scott got to Australia, which would be one of the last uh, stop-offs before getting to the Antarctic, uh, there was a letter, sorry, a telegraph waiting from for him from Amundsen saying... Um, I'm not exactly sure what it says, basically informing him that Amundsen had now decided to go to the South Pole. So even at that stage, with Scott there, transport being the way it was then, or kind of maritime travel, like he knew Amundsen had a huge advantage over him. You know? mm-hmm. there, there was a decent chance even before he'd left for the Antarctic that Amundsen would, um, would beat him.
1: Uh, and like there, there was, for example, the Japanese had, had a, an expedition planned. There was an Australasian-Antarctic expedition mm-hmm. that was heading for the Pole. And... This this happens over and over in history that the time is right that the technology had gotten just about to the stage yeah. where people said this kind of thing is possible. Let's all try it, mm-hmm. and that happens you know all around the world at once because the you know the rising tide lifts all
0: boats and the yeah the closing ice locks all boats. <laughs> Certainly, yeah, it's um it's it's interesting to look at with uh, with with Amundsen. He actually. It, I know. I just said that he was kind of building upon progress um, that the British had made in, in previous expeditions. But uh, in terms of routes, he used a completely new route to what they had done before. So um, the with Scott's expedition, um, I- even when he left, knowing that Amazon had left, even at that stage before him. He still chose to go on the previous route that Shackleton and himself had worked on. So knowing that it may potentially not be the the quickest route there, but I suppose in terms of, you know, uh, dealing with what you know rather than what you mm-hmm. don't, it would seem like a sensible decision. So, you know, when you compare it there, you've got Amundsen just deciding to go a new route and you know that could have easily ended pretty badly for all of them you know we're
1: we're, we're spoiled here we're talking about this and and we're looking at maps Mm. and we have satellite photos and we have the benefit of another hundred years but the 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 decision to go with a new route no one had been there before literally no one had been there before and it was it was a very brave move i think absolutely yeah
0: certainly risky very risky the yeah, I, I I wonder, one of the other crucial things was um, even from the get-go, Amundsen's group was very small. So uh, we, uh, we'd mentioned that uh, Scott's group, once they reached the barrier, were supposed to split into a group of four and four, and four would return and then double back and meet them on the return journey, and four would actually do the reaching of the South Pole. Uh, but Amundsen kind of understood that, I suppose... Lower numbers offer flexibility, less supplies to take with them, fewer chances of something going wrong with a bigger group and all that, you know. Um, but crucially as well, he actually landed 60 miles closer to the South Pole when he landed on Antarctica. I think it was um, it was the Bay of Wales he, he landed in, as, as far as you know, um, whereas Shackleton and S- Scott persevered with what, what they'd done before, you know. Um, I I suppose what's crucial to mention as well is with Scott's expedition, they had like scientific um, requirements to carry out, you know, as part of the funding for their expedition, as part of the stated objective of of the mission, um, there was a lot to to be fulfilled there. So I suppose, you know, he would have had a larger group, so he'd be able to delegate that to his science officer. I think it was Wilson. Would have been his head. Would have been his head science officer there. So I think I think
1: the important thing that we haven't gotten into is what what actually went wrong, what happened, yeah. and this might reflect on our sadism, or maybe we're just mirroring society's uh, morbid you know, curiosity. Morbid curiosity. This this healthy or unhealthy fascination with with death and disaster, and and glad it wasn't me, mm-hmm. but. I think this is the meatiest part of the story and it's also the saddest Um, but it's it's you know it's it's not risky unless there are real things that go wrong and and they knew there
0: were risks it was what if you look back like through um, not even just the recent ones through expeditions that had uh, been carried out before Terranova more often than not you had a few people dying anyway, you know, for different reasons, because any of them that involved like long distance travel overseas and relying on supplies and all that, um, it's tough to find any, any of the expeditions that wasn't affected like significantly by scurvy, even though they knew it was a problem and they knew they'd have to deal with it. Uh, for sure, yeah, I think when we were talking about the motivations earlier as well behind like why different people from different sections of society um, decided to go into it, I, I would imagine the, the thrill and the appeal of doing this dangerous thing that someone hasn't done before wouldn't be the same if there wasn't a danger of death, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: it, it's, it's weird that it's... it's on, on one hand, it's a draw, uh, and on the other hand, it, it, it has very real consequences for, as you say, almost all of the expeditions. Yeah. And not least Terra
0: Nova. <laughs> Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation on polar exploration. We hope you'll join us next week for part two. This has been Hard Hat History.